This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. I'm Graham Griffith, Associate Director and Head of Political Risk Analysis for the Middle East and North Africa. The apparent victory of Joe Biden in the U.S. presidential election will bring to a close a tumultuous period in U.S. foreign policy generally and U.S. policy toward the Middle East and North Africa specifically. President Donald Trump sought to reverse some of his predecessor Barack Obama's key policies. Most notably for the Middle East, that included his withdrawal of the U.S. from the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran. He also broke with past administrations in his conduct of foreign policy relying on direct contact between his administration, sometimes led by his advisor and son-in-law Jared Kushner, and foreign countries in bypassing the Pentagon and State Department bureaucracies. President-elect Joe Biden's initial choices for foreign policy and national security positions indicate a likely return to a more institutionalized approach to conducting foreign and defense policy, and a desire to revive and continue the approach to the region he helped craft under Obama. To discuss the ramifications of the incoming Biden administration for the MENA region, I'm joined by my colleague, Jonathan Wood, Director and Lead U.S. Analyst. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Graham. Happy to be here. And I'm also joined by Patrick Osgood, Senior Analyst and Lead Analyst for Control Risk Work on Iraq. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Graham. Great to be here. Jonathan, first question to you. President Trump has clearly resisted conceding defeat to President-elect Biden but his administration, in a seeming acknowledgement of the upcoming transition, has also been rushing to push through decisions that will cement the president's legacy and box in the new administration. What can we expect the administration to try to do with respect to MENA during its remaining time in office? I think that's exactly right. I mean, we are certainly in the end game of this election process with key results being certified in swing states and the administration now making formal efforts to cooperate with the transition and with the incoming administration. So that process is moving along. But exactly as you say, President Trump will still be in office for two months. Secretary of State Pompeo, who's just wrapped up one of his longest global tours, will remain in office during that time, presumably. And it seems like when it comes to the Middle East region, the outgoing administration will have three main objectives. First of these, as you said earlier, is absolutely to box in the Biden administration's plans to reopen nuclear negotiations with Iran and specifically to rejoin the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Rejoining that deal has been a plank of the Democratic platform. Biden says he wants to do it. He may want to expand that deal, but the outgoing Trump administration certainly wants to make that as difficult and costly as possible. The second key priority and one that may result from a reshuffle in the president's cabinet, especially at the Department of Defense, is to finally withdraw or or draw down U.S. forces that have been deployed in parts of the Middle East, especially Afghanistan, where a withdrawal has been announced, uh, potentially in Iraq and Syria, where President Trump has stated repeatedly that the the U.S. mission against the Islamic State is concluded and it's time to bring the troops home. And the third factor is going to be, most likely it seems to cement what the president sees as his one of his signature foreign policy accomplishments, and that is the normalization of relations between Israel and some of its neighbors in the Gulf region. Certainly this has been a major strategic and political priority of the president and his administration. How would you characterize the likely approach of the incoming administration to the region, and, and what are its priorities going to be? 
Well, I think the most important thing about the Biden administration, the most important difference will be a change in the tone and overall conduct of U.S. foreign policy, a move away from the unilateral, coercive, go-it-alone, America-first attitude towards one that is much more multilateral, institutional, and reliant on key alliances and partnerships that the U.S. still has globally, but which have been badly frayed over the last four years, especially in Europe, which is, of course, a key stakeholder and partner in the Middle East region, in Asia, where, you know, the U.S. kind of strategic weight is still oriented towards competition with China. In the Middle East, I think this will have some interesting implications because on one hand, the administration will continue to rely on on who it sees as strategic partners like Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. But on the other hand, it has outlined both a general policy direction and some specific policy concerns around things like human rights, of course, the Iran nuclear deal, arms transfers and the U.S. involvement in regional conflicts that are going to be, you know, potentially very different from what policies the Trump administration had pursued. And if anything, it seems as though the incoming administration's priorities will be to de-escalate some of the tensions in the region, certainly some of the conflict situations in the region where the U.S. is still involved. Of course, that includes Iraq, Syria, Libya, to focus on the Iran nuclear deal and what the U.S. perceives as a strategic threat from nuclear proliferation in the region and to cement and support those long-standing security alliances and geopolitical alliances that are really the bedrock of the U.S. posture in the Middle East. And I think going forward, also what the U.S. is likely to see as its most significant strategic hedge against China's burgeoning influence, diplomatic, economic, and security across the Middle East region. Pat, you're based alongside me here in Dubai. And so from your perspective, working in the region, what is the political and security landscape that faces the incoming Biden administration? Unless, as Jonathan says, the the Trump administration withdraws wholesale from theaters of U.S. military activity, the Biden administration is going to inherit three quite vexed legacy U.S. military engagements in the Middle East. It's going to continue to have some troop level in Afghanistan, where U.S. forces are continuing to confront the Taliban and try to support the government. In Iraq, where troops are assisting the government against the Islamic State and its continuing insurgency, but are constrained by continuing aggression from Iran-backed paramilitary groups. And in Syria, as uh, Jonathan mentions, where there is a residual special forces presence. More problematically, with a vague, quote-unquote, secure the oil policy in uh, oil fields in northeast Syria. In all of these cases, the U.S., military engagement will have to be kind of reckoned with and rationalized under the Biden policy. While Biden has emphasized preference for continuing to use small groups of U.S. special forces and advisors in these conflicts, Biden will have to rationalize, stabilize these engagements in a way that's consonant with the political implications of military change. In Syria, that's going to involve a reckoning with the sustainability and usefulness of the residual U.S. presence in eastern Syria. In Afghanistan, the military presence is intimately connected with a very problematic and incomplete attempt to arrange a orderly withdrawal with the Taliban. And in Iraq, Biden will have to face reconciling the troop engagement ne- needed to keep a tight lid on the ISIS insurgency while navigating domestic Iraqi opposition and Iranian opposition to the US presence. 
Biden will also face a region that's changed significantly since he left office. While there will be some familiar faces in several governments, the global COVID-19 pandemic and its economic effects are really only just being felt in the region and will play out significantly in the coming years in different ways. The Trump administration clearly viewed countries such as Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the UAE as its key partners in the region, and to a significant extent allowed its approach to the region to be shaped by the views and concerns of these countries. Jonathan alluded briefly earlier to some of the ways in which a Biden administration's approach to some of these countries could change. But from your perspective, Patrick, should these countries be concerned by the transition to a democratic administration? I think broadly and ultimately, no. As Jonathan mentioned, the Biden administration is to to a degree going to look to restore some of the traditional and enduring alliances in the region. And I think that security alliances with Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, to a lesser degree, Bahrain and Oman will remain strong. Biden will likely pull support for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, something that Riyadh is already preempting by seeking a quick resolution to the conflict, as without US support, the Saudi prosecution of the war is likely untenable. As a result of the Yemen war, human rights issues at home and killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018, Riyadh will have to weather a period of cooler relations with Washington. Saudi and Emirati leadership will almost certainly miss the easy and informal relations they enjoyed with key Trump advisors that you mentioned earlier. But I think abiding security and geopolitical interests will mean that the strategic relationships here will endure. I think also the Abraham Accords and the broader normalization efforts between the UAE and Israel and other Gulf states in Israel will be as warmly encouraged by Biden as as they were warmly instigated by Trump. You can see Biden more likely to push for substantive engagement on issues beyond arms transfers and commerce that will include, I think, some renewed effort for a substantive Israeli-Palestinian agreement. But I don't think the effort there will come at a cost of destabilizing those normalization agreements. Riyadh and Abu Dhabi in particular can take some consolation from Biden's professed willingness to tacky Turkey's regional venturism. That's going to be a sharp contrast with the Trump administration's extremely accommodating and really quite credulous stance towards Turkey's president, Erdogan. UAE in particular has aligned itself opposite Turkey in several regional conflicts and rivalries. And I think the Biden administration will either allow the UAE to continue with those without feeling that the White House is in some way a complicating factor, or I think it will have a forum in the White House to mediate and cool those tensions with Turkey should it wish to do so. And it will have a White House that will be capable of assisting with that as a sort of mediating party. A Biden administration will also have to deal with a much more multipolar and more self-confident Gulf, where China and Russia, two likely priorities for Biden to confront, as, as we mentioned, their influence has grown substantially, where the US is much less regarded as a reliable and kind of unilateral security guarantor. It's unclear what equities Biden is both willing and able to bring to this geopolitical contest in the Middle East. And, you know, the UAE in particular, I think, is going to continue to grow into a regional security actor, forging its own new security alliances that will, to a degree, conflict with these broader geopolitical priorities of the US with respect to China and Russia in particular. I think there is one place, Graham, that they might need to be worried 
which is simply that Congress in particular has been quite hawkish towards both Saudi Arabia and Turkey on certain sanctions issues. And the Trump administration and President Trump in particular was very protective of both countries, perhaps due to his personal relations with their leadership uh, on those issues. And it might be the case that a Biden administration, if it can thread the needle would be perhaps less protective and, and may not stand in the way of Congress's desire to impose sanctions on, on Turkey for its acquisition of a Russian air defense system and on some individuals in Saudi Arabia over, as Patrick mentioned, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi a few years ago. I think that mention of, of sanctions brings us nicely to the, the next issue I wanted to raise. Jonathan, you mentioned that Iran would be one of the incoming administration's priorities. How do you see it approaching any attempt to both re-enter and perhaps renegotiate the 2015 nuclear deal? So I think there are a few things to note here. I mean, the first is that the Biden administration essentially plots a return to the Obama era status quo ante, which is to say nuclear enrichment is a regional and global security threat. The main objective is to contain Iran's nuclear program and prevent a nuclear arms race in the region. And, and the best way to do that is through a negotiated solution that the JCPOA provided. And at the same time, Biden has been a bit more vocal about the need for a nuclear deal to both extend the time frame. As you may recall, some of the limitations on weapons sales to Iran have already expired and, and some other limitations are due to expire over the coming years. And Biden has suggested that, you know, it may be in the interest of the U.S. to extend those constraints beyond the time frames in the original JCPOA. And Biden has also mentioned expanding the deal to address some of the issues that were one of the main avenues of criticism, both domestically in the U.S. and within the MENA region about Iran's activities beyond its nuclear program in, in the wider Middle East region. And, and Biden has suggested that a expanded deal could seek to address what the current U.S. administration refers to as Iran's malign activities in places like Iraq and Syria and elsewhere. The second thing to note, and I think a very significant appointment that Biden has made is he's announced to have Jake Sullivan to be his national security advisor. And this is a advisor who was intimately involved with the 2015 JCPOA negotiations, who's well connected in Washington and in the region. And I think that is a very clear signal that this is going to be a, a high priority for the Biden administration. Patrick, as part of the confrontation with Iran that was pursued by the Trump administration and which the tensions as a result of which the Biden administration is now trying to roll back a little bit, the U.S. faced an increasingly complex and hostile landscape in Iraq. We've already touched a bit upon how the Trump administration might try to speed up a withdrawal of U.S. troops from the country in its remaining time in office and the kind of decision that the Biden administration might confront about its footprint in the country. But you know, you're a close follower of, of Iraqi politics. And what are the various actors within Iraq looking for from the new administration? Broadly speaking, we can sort of break down the Iraqi body politic here into a few different groups. The first one to mention is a bloc that's ideologically and, and militarily aligned with Iran and Iranian ideology, and that essentially wanted US troops out of Iraq yesterday and rejects US influence wholesale. 
At the most extreme end of this group are Iran-backed paramilitary groups within the Popular Mobilization Unit, an Iraqi security agency, that are nevertheless outside of the Iraqi chain of command and that have powerful political parties within Iraq's parliament. These paramilitary groups have been willing and able to take violent action against U.S. assets in Iraq in a bid to harass the U.S. to leave. And while these violent actors don't typically target U.S. companies, their activities continue to make it pretty hard for these companies operationally in Iraq. That's not likely to change in any circumstance. And while their activities, which in 2020 have been very frequent in terms of harassing attacks and then have kind of stopped more recently, so their frequency of how they'll attack will wax and wane, but their ideological commitment and their particular position isn't going to change. Then in the, the other end of the spectrum, you have minority but important constituencies who are largely Sunni and Kurdish political parties and their respective security forces who want the US to remain and welcome US engagement and would even like to see it increase to prior levels before the troop withdrawals that we've seen over the course of this year. These groups are also complemented by some factions within Iraq's security services, particularly Iraq's counterterrorism service, its US-trained elite security force that took a lead against the conflict against ISIS, who would like US engagement to endure. In the middle, you have this kind of much larger and more varied spectrum of politicians, principally in Shia parties, that quietly value US engagement and, and want more of it, of a kind of both in the security and investment and, and political spheres, but are to a significant degree intimidated, co-opted by the first group I mentioned, the sort of actively Iran-aligned groups, and perhaps somewhat opportunistically succumb to patronage and corruption opportunities that have come about as these Iran-aligned groups have in increased their power and influence within Iraq. They certainly don't act to or publicly ask for the US to go, but these reluctant and, uh, and quiet kind of uh, groups on this issue within the Iraqi body politic also don't really do anything to help the US to stay. And it's their inertia that allows Iran-backed actors to essentially continue with impunity in Iraq to attack US assets, to intimidate politicians, to uh, increase their business and economic power within the country. One thing that, that sort of ties this sort of very large grouping together with the Iran-aligned factions within Iraq is a huge appetite for Chinese investment and engagement in the country on a much larger scale than we're seeing already. So that will be a, a factor to look out for. These groups have been much keener to bring in greater Chinese investment than to do the hard work of creating the conditions for US-led investment to flourish. So this obviously presents difficulties for the Biden administration, securing a sustainable partnership and even of retaining a residual military presence in Iraq. The government has called for early elections in June next year. Whether or not these will actually happen is highly uncertain, but that result will tell us a lot about what Iraq, in a kind of muddled aggregate sense, wants and can reasonably expect from the US in future. Thanks, Patrick, for that really detailed look at Iraq. I'd now, in kind of a final question, like to zoom out a bit. We've seen a lot of US administrations come into office with quite grand designs for what they can accomplish in the Middle East, whether that's resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or ending the so-called forever wars. Now, the Biden administration is perhaps distinguished to some extent by its seeming desire and articulated desire to actually deprioritize the Middle East as a region and focus its energies on other geopolitical priorities, such as the competition with China and domestic crises at home, the recession and the COVID-19 pandemic. But what do you see as the primary risks that could upset 
the administration's broad approach to the region and this desire to kind of push it down the agenda of the U.S.'s foreign policy priorities. I think that's right. The, the, the region often throws up crises that invite and more rarely require significant U.S. engagement, regardless of prior U.S. positioning and intent. I think if I had to single out a real wild card in the region right now, it would be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic, which um, are really only just starting to play out across the region. And I think will have quite a broad and deep effect in the, in the years to come. What we're already seeing in the Middle East is a, an increasing bifurcation into kind of s- stronger states and more vulnerable states. And we're going to see stark differences in the speed of vaccine deployment and the kind of return to normalcy and economic recovery that this is going to eventually bring. Meantime, we have these kind of other macroeconomic impacts, particularly quite low for long oil prices that may in all likelihood never go back to the kind of pre-pandemic levels. Those things are real incubators of potential political fracturing, social unrest, and even small conflicts of the kind that we've seen in the last decade across the region that it then invite substantial international intervention and become longer and more severe as a result of that. It's that sheer unpredictability, I think, that's that's going to be an issue, arises from the sort of broad and deep effect of the pandemic. I think those things will kind of test the extent to which a Biden administration is going to be internationalist and the means by which it's going to want to engage in the region. More generally, the U.S.'s position in the region, I think, either as a partner or, you know, as a persuader has been eroded. And a risk to the integrity of Biden's policymaking is any potential to overestimating what he can do. We'll have to see, I think, as his policies take shape, whether the Biden administration looks to act in concert with that constraining reality or he's forced to find this out the hard way. Great. Well, with that, I think we have to draw this episode to a close. Thank you very much, Jonathan and Patrick, for your insights and perspectives. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.